taking a Bible, turn with me first to Isaiah 63. Our Old Testament reading is found there in Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9. And then we continue our reading through the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we are in great need to hear the voice of the Master as this wonderful word from heaven is brought to our heart and ear. Father, as your word is read publicly and preached, we pray that we would recognize the authority of God therein and that we would give due to that word all that it is owed, reverence, belief, obedience, joy, and rest. Lord, bring us to confidence in the words of your prophets and apostles as they have received it by your own spirit, and we too receive it so. Help us now, we ask, or else we cannot be helped. Come to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now turning to Acts chapter 9. We read of the conversion of the Apostle Paul who is also known by the name Saul, Saul being his Hebrew name. So when the Lord says to him in our reading, Saul, Saul, it is very most likely that the apostle is hearing the Lord in Hebrew. Paul is his Greek name. But beloved, this conversion is a foundational event in the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. You shall see. Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him 
into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, is, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me t- has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. <clears throat> In the year 1678, John Bunyan published what would become one of the greatest books of English literature, Pilgrim's Progress. You have probably heard of it, and perhaps you have read it. Eventually, this book would be translated into over 200 languages, and it has never yet gone out of print. Now, that is quite an accomplishment, isn't it? The second, the second best-selling book of all time, second to the Holy Bible. But some have said, if you read one of Bunyan's earlier works first, and then read Pilgrim's Progress, you will recognize how much of Bunyan's own life is in the pages of his greatest book. That earlier work is Bunyan's spiritual autobiography, titled Grace Abounding, to the chief of sinners. He wrote this during his 12-year prison sentence in the Bedford Jail. Bunyan had been arrested under the Conventicle Act of 16, or excuse me, of 1593, which made it illegal to attend religious gatherings outside of the Church of England if five or more people, more than your own family, were present. So Bunyan's in jail, and he makes, well, good use of his time. His purpose in writing Grace Abounding, his purpose is explained in the very opening page. He says he wants the Christian reader to always be remembering their own experiences with the grace of God in Christ. So he will show them how to do it by doing it himself. He says this, quote, Look diligently, leave no corner unsearched for that treasure, the treasure of your first and second experience of the grace of God towards you. 
Remember the word that first laid hold upon you. Remember your terrors of conscience and fear of death and hell. Remember your tears and prayers to God and how you sighed under every hedge for mercy. Remember the word upon which the Lord hath caused you to rest. Bunyan urges Christians to remember their first experiences with grace in case they later come to despair of God's love toward them or of God's power towards them or of God's mercy toward them. Your ability to remember your first experiences with God's grace, says Bunyan, will always lift you up again into the hope of Jesus Christ, a gracious Savior. And that remembrance is the privilege of the children of God. Now, where did Bunyan get this idea? He got it, he tells us, from the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was also named Saul, whose first experience with grace we just heard in Acts chapter 9. Bunyan noticed as he read his New Testament how Paul, throughout his life, keeps referring back again and again to these events in Acts chapter 9, always remembering his first experience with God's grace. In Acts 22, Paul tells an angry crowd of Jews at Jerusalem all the details of his conversion on the road to Damascus. In Acts 26, under arrest in Caesarea, Paul tells King Agrippa all the details of his conversion on the road to Damascus. Then in chapter 3 of his letter to the church of Philippi, Paul tells them of his conversion. Then in his letter to Timothy, chapter 1, Paul speaks again of his conversion. And he does it again in 1 Corinthians 15. And he does it again in Galatians chapter 1. Paul, Saul is like the author of Psalm 66, who said this, Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Psalm 66, 19. Why does Paul keep taking the church back to his own first experience of God's saving grace? Well, he certainly does it to teach us to do the same. But there's another reason, far more significant reason. Paul wants the whole church to discover in his own first experience of grace all the true and wonderful and beautiful ways of God in saving sinners. Paul's first experience of grace, Acts 9, is a paradigm. It is a template. It is a model. It is an example to all people everywhere of God's willingness to save and God's way of saving the most wretched, sinful men and women on the earth and everything short of that. Paul's personal first experience of grace is going to draw the lines that keep the whole church of God fixated upon the gospel until the end of the age. Writing years later to Timothy, 
Paul says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why does the Spirit keep leading Paul to write down his first experience with grace? So that you would never forget what saving grace really is. Paul's salvation is a paradigm. His first experience of grace on the road to Damascus is designed by God so the church never forgets that the foundation, the foundation of our acceptance with God is a foundation of abounding grace, not abounding good works. It is a foundation of perfect patience. It is a foundation of extravagant mercy. Beloved, this is the Christian faith. There is none other. So in Acts 9, we get to see this foundation in one big picture and in a few smaller pictures as Paul, Saul, is converted. Here's the big picture. Here's the big picture of a foundation of abounding grace. One day Paul is hunting Christians, and he is no Elmer Fudd. He is Rambo. He is hunting Christians one day, breathing threats and murder against them. He tells us in another place that whenever somebody came up for a vote to be put to death, he cast his vote that they be put to death. Men and women, fathers and mothers. But the next day, the next day, the hunter is called by Christ, forgiven all his sins, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and commissioned to serve Christ in his kingdom. Now, when we look at the first three verses of Acts 9, as these verses come at us, as if we were reading this for the first time, we don't see good things coming for Saul. On the contrary, verses 1 through 3 make us think God is coming to destroy this wicked man named Saul. In fact, remember what Luke has already told us as the reader. He told us back in chapter 8, verse 3, that all Christians wanted Saul defeated. Acts 8, 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So now at the top of Acts 9, Saul is before us again, as ugly as ever, as evil as ever, And we are hoping on the Lord's vengeance, aren't we? I wonder how often early Christians prayed to God to stop Saul. How often did they pray psalms like Psalm 10, verse 15? Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account. Psalm 11, 6. Rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. Psalm 139, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Now, such prayers in the heart and in the mouth of the early church would not have been wrong in Saul's, with Saul's violent reputation 
But God has more than one way of defeating the wicked. Do you know it? Do you know it? There is a way other than judgment. God has abounding grace and mercy. Years later, Paul will say to Timothy, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy and grace and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 1, 13. Beloved, what is mercy? What is grace? Paul has just attributed the defeat of his wickedness to mercy and grace. Grace is God giving gifts to us sinners that we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding penalties, withholding penalties from us sinners that we do deserve. Grace and mercy are the last two things we would expect heaven to pour out on a man like Saul. But our risen Savior pours them out in abundance on this man. Christ does not deal with Saul according to Saul's deserving. Believer, Christ has not dealt with you according to your deserving. I read a wonderful essay this week by a very honest man who said that it's very easy for him to thank God for grace, but very hard for him to thank God for mercy, to thank God for the times that the Lord has withheld penalties that are owed to him for his sin. Beloved, mercy is the servant of grace's glory. They are always together in this redeeming of the sinner. Christ pours this out on Saul. And why does he? On such a wicked man. Because of what Christ says to Ananias in verse 15 of our text. Saul is a chosen instrument of Christ the King. Chosen before he was born. Chosen before his career of wickedness. His being chosen was eventually going to catch up with him. It could not be stopped. The Lord's choice will not fail. Therefore, Saul must be converted. Saul, well, let's back up. If the Lord has chosen Saul, Paul, Saul must be born. Saul must be converted. Saul must be forgiven. Saul must be justified. Saul must be made new. Saul must go on and successfully serve Christ through much suffering. Contrary to the will of the sinner to go on sinning, that's Saul, but contrary to the sinner's will is the will of sovereign grace to interrupt the sinner and save the sinner. This is what God has done for you. He did not genuflect and bow to your will. He ravished your soul with the announcement of his Savior Son 
and your desperate need for him and his readiness to give him to you. Beloved, God's grace is irresistible to all he has chosen, no matter how wicked. Well, beloved, that's the big picture. That is the foundation of Saul's and of our own acceptance with God. Do you know it? Christ from heaven has come to you not because you were ready for his coming, but because he was ready. Not because you chose him, but because he chose you. And you might say, well, I sure wish he came before I got such a record of wickedness on the books. Beloved, he came at exactly the right time. Because at the time he came, his perfect plan was being unfolded to make you also a display of his perfect patience in the saving of the ungodly. So he came to you when you were wicked. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, he came to you. When you were following the course of this world, that's when he came to you. Not after you had enrolled in in, in moral reform classes. He came to you when you were following the prince of darkness. When you walked in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he came to you then. It was then that Christ came. Your spiritual loveliness did not catch his eye. You had none. He made you lovely by willing that his grace overflow to you with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, do you have a remembrance of your first experiences with this grace? And if you say, well, pastor, I really don't. I've I always have grown up in the church. In fact, I never can remember a day when I didn't know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Praise God for that. But that in no way, beloved, excludes you from what John Bunyan, what Paul, what I am speaking of today. You see, your first experiences of God's grace are most pure and most real and most near when they are found in the word of God, which testifies to you that you are a son, a daughter of Adam the first, that in him, your father, your covenant head, Adam, you became a sinful rebel, dead under the condemnation of God. Start there. Hold that to your bosom until you know it is as true of you as You are the son of your father and mother today. Now, I want you to see some smaller pictures, some closer-up pictures of the same foundation of abounding grace. Remember what we are working out here. Paul's conversion, according to Paul himself, is paradigmatic. It is a model. It is exemplary for the salvation of all Christians, not only after Acts chapter 9, but all the way before, running back to Genesis chapter 3. So what is a little closer picture? Well, we have already said Saul's own experience of grace is a paradigm. We want to see how the very words now that Christ speaks to him 
fit into the paradigm. Look at the words of our Savior from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now think about what those words reveal to Saul and, in fact, to the whole church of God until the end of the age. They reveal that the law does not cure the sinner of his lawlessness. Do you see it? That's what those words reveal. The law, the law of God, the law of Moses, it does not cure the sinner of his lawlessness. Remember, Saul was one of the top men among the Jews. He had command of his life. Moral reformation was his expertise. You would vote for him. He had self-control. He had theological knowledge. He had religious fervor. But he did not have Christ. Listen as he himself describes it in Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, 4 and 6. To be saved by Christ, Paul needed to learn how powerless the law is to make a man righteous. Make a man righteous. He would learn this for the first time in his life, in the verdict spoken against him from heaven. Saul, Saul, you are persecuting me. Saul, you are a man of lawlessness. Saul, you are an opponent of God. Saul, you have become worse and worse by trying to become better apart from faith in Christ, apart from the Spirit of God. Saul, by trying to establish your own righteousness, you have refused to submit to God's righteousness. Saul, righteousness from God depends on faith. Saul, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Saul, believe this word from heaven. You think you are a lawkeeper? You are a transgressor. Heaven's verdict is that you are an evil man. So let's take this back to our paradigm. Back to the foundation of abounding grace. When God, in sovereign grace, comes to save the sinner, he does not come to admire and commend our righteousness. He does not come to applaud all the good we have done or have tried to do. No, he comes to declare a verdict against us to save us. And when we are slain under the weight of his verdict, 
when we are humbled under the weight of his verdict, when we are made blind under the weight of his verdict, then we discover that we are rightly under God's judgment and that we need an alien righteousness, a gifted righteousness, a righteousness from outside ourselves. We need the righteousness of Christ, which comes only by faith. And this, beloved, is what Paul, what Saul discovered during his three days of blindness. Christ struck him with blindness to reveal to Saul his true spiritual condition, his condition before heaven's throne. During our Lord's earthly ministry, he spoke much of blindness. He made clear, our Lord did, that he thought the Pharisees were the most blind men on the earth, the blindest men in the church. So blind, he says, your guilt remains. Let me share it with you. In Matthew 23, Jesus calls the Pharisees blind five different times in that one chapter. He calls them blind guides two times. He calls them blind fools one time. He calls them blind men one time. And he calls them just plain blind one time. Covers all the bases. Then in John 9, 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, keep in mind, Saul was a Pharisee. In John 9, 39, our Lord says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees immediately asked him in response, Are you saying we are also blind? The Lord replies, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here we come to understand what Christ has done in putting Saul into darkness for three days, like he did with Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days. Christ is showing Saul his true guilt, his true need for Christ. By owning his blindness, his sinful condition, Saul will then see it is Christ alone who bears away the sinner's guilt. For it is Christ alone who spent three days himself in death's darkness, three days himself under sin's judgment, three days himself removing the sinner's guilt once and for all. This makes Christ the sinner's only hope for righteousness. Beloved, hear this today. Moral reformation is not your hope for acceptance with God. Hear this. The law of Moses, a revived Judaism, is not your hope for acceptance with God. Hear this. Libertarian politics, this age politics of any stripe, Ordering your life around it, it is not your hope for acceptance with God. You must discover this. You must go blind if you think you can see that there is a way to be accepted with God apart from Christ crucified and risen. There is no way. 
And if you think there is a way, you are as blind as Paul was made blind. It is a wonderful thing when Ananias comes to Saul. You can almost hear Ananias' knees knocking, can you not? To go before this ferocious, once turbulent beast whom he has not seen before but has heard terrible things about. But it is a beautiful thing what the Lord tells Ananias. And it's not recorded here in Acts 9, but it is recorded in Acts 22. When Ananias is expressing his reservations about going to help this blind Saul, the Lord says to him, he says this about Saul, but he says it to Ananias, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's Acts twenty-two fourteen. Ananias says this right after the scales fall on the floor off of Saul's eyes. And so Ananias has just said, God has appointed you to see the righteous one. There is only one who is righteous, and he is the righteous one. Everything you need for heaven, everything you need to have your life made new is in the righteous one. Only then Will you really gain a true traction in heart because you have a new heart to do and obey the will of God? Beloved, the work of God's saving grace always includes bringing the sinner under heaven's verdict. That's what we see in this paradigmatic conversion. You are persecuting me. That's a verdict so that the sinner can be saved. The Lord's saving grace always brings the sinner under heaven's verdict. If you have noble thoughts of God, if you have generous thoughts of God, you think, if, you have, if you're willing to even confess that you love God, but you have not heard a verdict from God that you are guilty and needing the righteousness of another, all of your thoughts about God avail you nothing because you are using them simply as a cloud to h- cover the crucified man, the crucified God, Jesus Christ. Until we discover that our best efforts cannot produce acceptance with God, we will never come to Christ. I remember the years in my life, they were about two, when I was an awakened sinner, but not a Christian. I had a kind of faith, but not a saving faith. I believed there was one God. I believed his son was Jesus Christ. But for two years, I was tying myself in knots, trying to figure out, well, how do I get out of my sin? How do I quiet my conscience? How do I reform my life? And I just had some friends that nobody's ever heard of. That's how famous they are. But they shared with me the most famous good news over and over again. They just kept, like, every day I came to their house and they'd put another post-it note with the gospel on my head, so to speak. I'd come home, I'd come back the next day, clean forehead, they'd put it on there again. 
They just kept telling me, John, you have to rest by faith in the work of Christ. You are under the condemnation of God, and Christ is the only way out of it. By God's saving grace, I believed. And beloved, I I could tell you that story, and I've told some of you that story. Follow Bunyan's advice. Become deeply acquainted with your first, your second experience with the saving, abounding grace of God to you. Remember the names. Remember the places. This will serve you well when you have sinned again and think that you have surely lost the love of God. You had already lost it when he came to you the first time. You had none of it, and he came. Oh, blessed remembrances, aren't they? Beloved, we must discover our blindness so we can come to faith in Christ. He must become our all in all. Now, there is one last thing to observe in this paradigm of abounding grace that we are talking about this morning. And it is found in the Lord's words to Saul in verse 15 and 16. This is carried to Saul's ear later by Ananias. In verse 16, the Lord says, the man who has caused so much suffering for the church will begin to suffer very much for the church. Do you see the wonder of grace here? This, too, is the work of grace. The man who is causing the church to suffer, Saul, Saul, you are persecuting me, will now suffer gladly for the same church and Savior. Now understand, the same grace that is the root of your salvation is the grace that produces the fruits of your salvation. You're not justified by the fruits, but they are a testimony that you have been justified at the root. The same free grace of God that acts to justify you with Christ's imputed righteousness through faith is the same free grace of God that works to sanctify you with Christ-infused holiness. Grace saves us from something, and it saves us for something. Grace saves us from sin's penalty, but grace saves us for Christ's honor and for Christ's glory. And this is why the Apostle Paul will have a career of suffering for the body of Christ. And so does every believer who has been converted by this abounding grace to sinners in Jesus Christ. Our salvation immediately opens to us the privilege of following after the suffering Savior who laid down his life for us and continues to suffer with us. His sufferings for us are complete. His sufferings with us continue. And we are privileged to take up those same fruits for his glory, for his honor. Listen to how Paul speaks of this to the Corinthians. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. Beloved, this is the fruit of grace. And it is also in the paradigm, the model, the example of the converting of sinners. When you are converted by grace and you know that it is not your merits, your works that makes you acceptable to God, but all that God has done for you in the offering of his son, then you are liberated to live for God from the heart for the first time. To serve him, not checking how much you've done for him, but always checking how much he has done for you. Listen carefully. You are always putting your heart and soul back under the law when you start looking at what you have done for Christ and saying, hey, I did my 20 things this year. I'm done. Or in a note of despair, I haven't been able to do the 20 things that guy has done. Both of those are putting your heart back under the law. The soul that is under grace, abounding grace, doesn't check its own works and count them. It checks and looks at the works of Christ, and it is a comfort to us in our season of weakness, and it is a chastening to us should we enter a season of pride. We, by the same grace that we are justified, overflow in a grace of fruitful works. Beloved, let me encourage you. Search for the treasure. Become an expert in your own spiritual autobiography. Go and look and study and write it out, your first and second experiences with the saving grace of God. Paul's example encourages you to do it. And if you find yourself struggling, confused where to look, confused how to remember, then go to something even more sure. Go to Acts 9 again, Acts 22, Acts 26. Study the first and second experiences of Paul's spiritual autobiography, his experiences with saving grace, because in them you will find your own. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the grace that abounds to the chief of sinners. We thank you for the verdict that we hear in our soul from the word of Christ in heaven, whenever he says to us, you are the man, you have done wrong, you have broken every commandment of my law. We thank you for that verdict, Lord. Without it, we would still think we can see, but by it, we've discovered our blindness and our need for a healer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the healing grace of your beloved Son. Grant us also to see afresh 
that he is the righteous one. Thus, he alone is our righteousness before you. And let us, Lord, rejoice that our righteousness is not upon the earth, that it cannot be found among men. It cannot even be found in our own lives, for it is in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy this great treasure. O gracious Lord, keep our hearts, our hands, our eyes off of the false substitutes that would make Christ small to us and make us ashamed of his death and resurrection. Let us see clearly in the day and boast in him until the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.